Um, our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word to us. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us. Father, we thank you for the glorious promise of the new creation that we look forward to. We thank you that you're going to remake this world and that you're going to remake us. And we know, Father, that it's quite clear that we're not there yet. And so we pray, Father, that this, your word is always timely and it's always helpful. And so we pray, Father, by the power of your spirit that you'll give us soft hearts tonight, that this word wouldn't hit us and, and bounce off, but would uh, deeply impact and change us. And um, I pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, are we there yet? Uh, you, you ever, have you ever said that in a car? You're a parent. Have you ever been in, has had that inflicted upon you? You know that great statement by young children on a long tri- car trip? Are we there yet? Uh, I know that. Uh, can I tell you that um, where's little Maxie? He, when he starts talking, he'll be going, are we there yet? Right, there he is. He spontaneously praised God during Revelation 21 reading before, which I thought was fantastic. <laughs> And, uh, but I remember last September, uh, we were going on a family holiday and we decided that we would drive all the way to the Gold Coast, which is just manic when you have uh, three children. But we decided we'd do it, so a 12-hour drive over the following two days. And uh, we'd got the whole, we had the, only had the Ford Falcon then, and it was just packed to the, everything was just packed in. And we were, you know, we had the cube on the top and it was packed with stuff and we had my bike on the roof and all the other bikes hanging out the back. It looked like this huge shopping trolley, you know, with bags hanging off it. And the whole Fantastic Five, as we like to call ourselves, was sort of um, the Simons family. We were sort of all packed in. And you know when everyone's got bags underneath their feet and the kids have their feet up because everything is under them and we're all packed in. The bottom of the car is almost hitting the back of the road. And off we go, right, for our 12-hour trip up the highway. And... um, uh, Lenore, it's 5am, we wanted to beat the traffic, and uh, Lenore's got, you know, sort of uh, two coffees ready for us, because if you're going to travel with three kids, 12 hours, you need a coffee to start the day, that's for sure, and we're five minutes into the trip, right, it's five past five, right, and we're, we're still going down Stony Creek Road, we, we hadn't even hit Beverly Hills yet, and Maddie, who was always at full tilt at 5.05am when she's up, she says, are we there yet, and I thought, oh my god, Goodness, right? 11 hours and 55 minutes to go, and Maddie's already, are we there yet? Right? It ended up being a great holiday for the family. Can I say that on the way back they slept more, which was fantastic? Uh, we had a great time. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. You've either been inflicted with this, or you've been the inflictor. If you don't have kids, you were painful when you were a kid. You may not remember this, but you were. And, um, and, you were, I didn't offend you. You know that this is true. You always said to your parents, we, uh, are we there yet? Now, can I say that often when we follow, we know that following Jesus, it's pretty obvious that we're not there yet. Uh, I remember as a young Christian, and I still am, being, you know, being captivated by Jesus' promise that he's going to recreate this world and he's going to make it new and I'm going to be part of that. I can remember first hearing about that as a young Christian, not, not airy fairy heaven, you know, the one, you know, Philadelphia cheese ads with angels plucking harps. No, not that. The biblical, physical, just like this new creation that Jesus is going to make for us when he comes back. And I'm going to be part of that. And don't, don't you look forward to that? But it's never been so obvious than this week that we're not there yet. We are definitely not there yet. I mean, sometimes it's very obvious that we're not yet there yet. 
I've been speaking to a number of you this week, and it's really obvious. Relationships are tough. Jobs are tough. Making ends meet as a family is tough. Uh, Sickness is ravaging either your body or someone else's body. Uh, There are people in our church that are having chemotherapy right this second for cancer that's riddling their bodies. Life is hard. People are hurting. We are certainly not there yet. When you read Revelation 21, you think dying and pain and sickness won't exist. We're definitely not there yet. It's obvious. And the other way it's obvious that we're not there yet is, I've got to say, in here, I'm not there yet. I can also remember as a young Christian, I remember when I first found out that my God and Saviour, the God who had died for me and Lord, do you know that he'd, he's written a book? Can you believe that? It's called the Bible. <laughs> I remember being very excited about that. And the fact that he'd written this book and contained in this book was his wisdom for how to do life in this world and how to be like him. And I remember first reading the Bible and thinking, I want to be like Christ and I want to know him and I want to live for him. But I don't think at 19 I really realised how tough that was going to be because I got converted at 19 and for the 19 years before that I'd grown up with a totally different way of thinking about the world than what's in here. And I was a Sydney private schoolboy, if you can imagine that. Right. Feel sorry for me, don't you? Yeah. And I thought like a Sydney private schoolboy did. And generally that's this, is that this world, a Sydney private schoolboy thinks like this, that this world is made for me and for me to exploit. That's what this world is all about. And that had to change. As a young Christian man, my way of thinking about the world had to change. And so I dived into the Bible And I had a look and I wanted to live like Christ. But can I say that over the years, the changes have come really slowly. And that is super frustrating because I keep making the same mistakes again and again and again and again and again. I'm certainly not there yet. Because when it comes to knowing Christ and living like Christ and thinking like Christ, I'm not there yet. Do you know know what I'm thinking about? Do, do, Do you know this... Same feeling within yourself. That the world that we live in, we're definitely not in heaven yet. And personally, we're not there yet. A good friend of mine often described it like this. Uh, He described it like this. As Christians, it's like we live with a foot in two worlds. Isn't that true? We've got one foot, because of Jesus, firmly planted in the world to come. And you know why the world to come is guaranteed? Because Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus didn't get get up out of the grave, then we've got nothing to look forward to. But because he did get up out of the grave, he's proven to us that there's going to be a physical new creation. I've got one foot in that world, and so do you if you trust him. And you know what? We've got another foot where? In this world, where we live right now. The world that's broken, the world that's hurting, and it's hurting because of you, and it's hurting because of me. We've got one foot in a perfect world where we're also perfect, And we've got one foot in this world where we're not. And so what do you do with that? And we live in this tension, don't we, between having one foot in this world and one foot in the world to come. And it's a tension. And I want to persuade you tonight that as Christians, it's really important that we live like we're not there yet. We have to live like we're not there yet. Because I have to say that I reckon some of us think that we've already arrived. 
I think some of us are living like this is it. And other of us are living like we're not there yet. So I want to encourage you. And those of you who are living like this is it, I want to challenge you a little bit. Because remember last week, remember what Paul said? He, he, he summed up his whole life and he said, I consider everything to be a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Everything else is a loss. And then the week before that, what did he say his mantra for life was? To live is Christ and to die is gain. I can remember after giving that talk, someone said to me, I'd like to say to die is gain, that it'd be better to be with Christ. But you know what? I find that hard to believe. You know why? Well, because he is real. He is tangible. Here I can touch, but there, Jesus, I can't see him. I can't touch him. It's not real. To say to die is gain, it's just hard because it's not tangible. And that's true. The Bible says that. Right now, we live by faith. On that day, we'll live by sight. And so at the moment, we've just got to imagine what that will be like according to what the Bible says. And what does it say? It says on that last day, do you know all of us are going to get a new body, just like Jesus' glorious body? And we'll see him face to face. Can you believe that? The Lord who died for you, you'll be able to go up to him, and I'm sure he'll let you. You get to touch the place on his hands where the nails went in, when he got crucified on a cross for your sins, you get to see him. You get to touch him. The very person that you've wanted to know your whole life, you get to see him face to face. Can you imagine what that day would be like? But in the meantime, that would be gain, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be gain to see him? But in the meantime, seeing we're not dead, right? None of you are dead. If you're listening to this talk, you're alive. Yeah? But seeing we're not dead yet, that would be fantastic because we'll be with him. But it In the meantime, who do we live for? We live for him in this world. And that means to know him and to live like him. Now, don't you hate it when Christians pretend like everything's perfect? You say, what's your idea of the perfect life? But what are you living for? And they say, I'm living for Christ. I want to know him and I want to live for him. And you ask them, is there anything going wrong in your life? And they say, oh, no, it's perfect. Any, any struggles you're going through? No, I'm living for Christ. I want to know him and I want to live for him. Can I say that that's called a Christian fake? And Paul is not like that at all. He says, as far as knowing Christ and living for him, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. Did you see that? Sometimes that surprises people who think that Paul, the apostle, is a super Christian who never struggled. But he's not. He says, I'm not there yet. Have a look at verse 10 to 12. Of Philippians 3. He says this. Paul says, My goal is to know him, that's to know Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. By the way, that doesn't mean that he'll maybe reach the resurrection from among the dead. It means that in that way, imitating Christ in his sufferings, that's the way that we'll get to the resurrection. But then he says, just to be clear, look at verse 12. He says, not that I've already reached the goal, that is knowing Christ and being like him, or I'm already fully mature. I'm not, he says. But I make every effort to take hold of it, that is to know Christ and live for him, because I also have been taken hold of by Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Paul says, I'm not there yet. As far as knowing Christ and living for him, I'm not there yet. 
I mean, what had happened to Paul? Do you remember what happened to Paul? Remember the day that Jesus grabbed a hold of him for the first time? Paul is walking on the road to Damascus, minding his own business. Well, not exactly. <laughs> he was going off there to spend, do what he'd been doing for a while, and that's persecuting Christians and giving them a hard time. And he's on his road to Damascus, and Jesus, metaphorically speaking, grabs him by the scruff of the neck and says, Guess what, Paul? Your whole life is about to take a 360. Instead of persecuting me and approving at the death of my followers, guess what? You're going to proclaim my name to the nations. And Jesus grabs him by the scruff of the neck, grabs hold of him, and changes his life. And from that day forward, Paul said, Do you know what? I want to know Christ, and I want to live for him. But now it's 30 years later. And he says, as far as knowing Christ and living for him, I'm not there yet. I'm not. Now, do you find that encouraging? I do. Because isn't that what it's like to be a Christian? Being a Christian is always about learning. It's always about growing. It's always about repenting. It's always about humbling yourself. It's always about changing. That's the Christian life. There's never a point in the Christian life where you can say, Guess what? I've arrived as a Christian, right? You know, you know that's it. Uh, like I've gone pro as a Christian. Sometimes when you meet people, you think that that's what they thought. You know, I don't need to repent. I don't need to learn. I don't need to change. Just so you know, I'm going to wear this badge out at the hub next week. Officially mature as a Christian, right? I've made it. Right? None of us achieve perfection in the Christian life. None of us. Now, needless to say, it would be fantastic if we could. I mean, wouldn't you love it if there was like a little pill that you could take, right? That just sort of little holiness pill and you just took it and then instantly you became like Christ and you never upset anyone and you always lived for him and you made fantastic decisions for the rest of your life. Well, it doesn't work like that. And Paul's not a superhero and he says, I haven't reached my goal yet. I want to know Christ and live for him and I'm not there. He labored and struggled just like us. We will never as Christians reach perfection until Jesus comes again. That's really important to know that. Now, how many of you struggle with this? I know there's a, there may be a few of you. How many of you, you don't have to put your hand up, would say that you're perfectionistic in your orientation? Or you know someone, or you're friends with you, or you're married to someone who's a perfectionist, right? I feel sorry for you. I'm sorry about that. You know the perfectionist always needs to get HD, right? The hair's always in the right place. Uh, they iron their undies, right? You know the perfectionist, right? Their sock drawer is organised like a filing cabinet. You, you, do, you, do you know a perfectionist? Are you one? See, the problem is, perfectionists, is that if you're a perfectionist and a Christian, you can often lose your joy because you think that perfection is possible in the Christian life. And it's not. You always aspire to live for Christ, like an athlete, you want to hit every shot, but sometimes you miss. Like in, in MasterChef, what do you want to do? You want to put perfection on a plate. Yeah, whatever that is. I mean, I, I look at MasterChef and you don't want to be perfection for me if the serving sizes were bigger. Right? That, no, don't forget, it. Just, what would make this meal better? Just larger quantity. I, I think that would be perfection on a plate. But it's true that we can grow in Jesus, we can mature in Jesus, we can move forward in Christ... But Paul says, I'm not perfect. I have not reached my goal and I won't until Jesus comes again. And do you know what that means? 
It means that it should actually allow us to be gracious with each other. Really gracious. And sometimes a little bit more patient with each other when growth needs to happen. But isn't that true? A little bit more humble when you see a friend who's a Christian who's doing something wrong and you just realize, I'm a work in progress and you're a work in progress. I'm just one beggar showing another beggar where to get a meal and that's Jesus. And neither of us, none of us are are there yet. It should make us humble when we're dealing with each other, when we're struggling. And also living like we're not there yet, what we've also got to do is forget what is behind and stretch forward to what is ahead. You see that? We're like athletes. Look at verse 13. Paul uses an analogy to describe it. He says, brothers, look at verse 13. I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, that is, knowing Christ and living for him perfectly. But one thing I do, Paul says, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. What's the prize that we're all going to receive on the last day when we get to heaven? Do you know what the prize is? The prize is Jesus. We'll get to be with him and enjoy him and enjoy each other forever. And we run towards that goal like a runner. Now, Paul says, think about a runner. Now, a runner does not do this. A runner doesn't sort of, remember, he's looking towards the line. He doesn't sort of look around, sort of wondering what all the other competitors are doing. He doesn't look behind him to see the part of the track that he's already covered. He doesn't look to see who's running behind him. He doesn't see who's running alongside. Right? What does he do? He looks for the tape or she looks for the tape and he bends out and he stretches towards the goal and he runs straight towards it. Right? Now, Usain Bolt ruins Paul's illustration altogether. Does he not? Right? He ruins his illustration because he doesn't run like that. What does Usain Bolt do? He doesn't forget <laughs> what's behind. I mean, when he's running the race, he's looking around. He's looking at all the other athletes. He's sort of looking at himself. Do you see him looking at himself in the, in the, in the, in the stadium? Right? He looks at himself on the screen to see if he's looking cool, and he always is, right? just sort of adjusting his hair as he goes. And, you know, and, and he's looking at what the other competitors are doing, and he's not stretched out towards the goal, focused on the end. I mean, he's just jogging. You know, just sort of, he ruins this illustration. Right? You are meant to not look around as a runner and strain straight towards the goal. And that's exactly what he doesn't do. But as we live as Christians, Paul says, we've got to forget what's behind and strain forward to what is ahead. What did this mean for Paul? He actually had to forget his achievements in the past and he also had to forget the sin that he committed in the past. He had to leave it behind. Can I say that as I look around the room, and I love all of you guys, Some of us need to forget better. We need to get better at forgetting. We need to forget what's behind and strain towards what's ahead. Paul is not going to let his past failures as a Christian stop him working towards the goal of heaven. Paul's forgotten his past in that last chapter. He's forgotten all of his religious achievements that would make him proud before God. He's left them behind. And some of us... We need to leave our sin behind. For example, I know that some of you, something that's happened in your past actually is not helping you to go towards the goal, a particular sin that you've committed. Can I say, if, do you know that Jesus died for that sin? 
He died for it. It's forgiven if you trust him. And have you taken that sin before him? Have you confessed it to him? Have you confessed it to others if that's appropriate? Have you sought help from the Bible in the area of life that may have caused you to do that? Have you repented properly? Have you made amends with someone you may may need to have made amends with? And has Jesus taught you through it? If you can say yes to all of those questions, then leave it behind. Forget it. It's gone. Leave it behind. Some of us need to get better at forgetting. Jesus has forgiven you. If you've changed as a result, we need to leave it behind. How do you know if you've left it behind? Well, the answer to that is you can talk about it. Because if, you, if someone asks you, uh, do you want to talk about this? And you say, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. It's in the past. I, I can't. I don't want to go there. I don't want to go anywhere near it. Can I say that you're running towards the goal, but yet you're finding it hard to forget what's behind you? The way that you'll know that you can forget what's behind you is if you can talk about it. I'll give you an example. Right? If a person can say, I cheated on my spouse and it almost destroyed our marriage. But you know what? God's taught me through it. And I've learned. And I've repented. And I've changed. And I've no- I know that Jesus died for that sin. And I'm so thankful that my wife has got me back. And I want to live for him from now on. And I'm so thankful that that sin's been able to be dealt with. And you can talk about it with someone. That means that you're in the process of leaving that sin behind. And some of us have got to get better at leaving sin behind so that we can actually reach forward to the goal that's ahead. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So leave it behind, whatever it is. Because it's actually mature Christians that realize this and that live like this. Right? Have a look. at We know that we've got plenty of room to grow. Look at verse 15. It says this. Paul says, Therefore, all of you who are mature should think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. Now, does that sound really arrogant? Basically, Paul's saying, I'm right. And uh, the only way you'll, you'll work out that I'm right is if God reveals to you that you're wrong and that you, you come around to my way of thinking. That's what he's saying. Paul's saying, I'm mature. And the only way that you'll be mature is if you agree with me. Does that sound arrogant? Right. The reason why it's not arrogant is because what Paul is saying. He's saying, I'm not perfect. And so what a, what a mature Christian realizes is that they're not perfect and that they're not there yet and that we need to change and that we need to grow. And so when Paul says, follow my example, what he's saying is follow my example in being humble and wanting to change and altering your life because of the gospel. Uh, What does a mature Christian say? A mature Christian says stuff like this. There's plenty of room for me to grow in my Christian life. There's plenty of things that I need to change. There's plenty of things that I need to work on because I've got one foot in this world and I've got one foot in the other world. That's exactly what a mature Christian says. A mature Christian does not say, I'm perfect. I've got all this sorted out, knowing Christ. That's it. You know the test of this? Is generally when someone that you love points out, because of love, a particular sin in your life that you know is true, the way you react to it 
will show you whether you're mature or not. The mature reaction when someone points out a sin to you is this. You know what? You're right. I've sinned. I've stuffed up. I need to change. I need to repent. And thank you so much for being gutsy enough to point that out in my life because no one else has had the guts to say that to me before. But you just did, and I'm so thankful that Jesus put you here. Because I don't think any of us after church tonight would come out and say, you know what, Uh, I'm perfect. You you come down and you have a drink afterwards and someone says, do you know Christ and do you live for him? And and none of you are going to say, yeah, I do that perfectly. I mean, I just nail that every day. None of you are going to say that. But some of us act like we are. I'll give you an example. When confronted by the Bible, you know you're reading the Bible and you read a particularly challenging bit and you say, that'd be good for someone else to hear. Right? Yeah? You ever done that? Or someone challenges you about something in your life and the way you react is you react with a hard heart and you're stiff-necked and rebellious and foolish and obstinate and disobedient and blame-shifting. Oh, you don't understand me. You don't understand what it was like for me. You didn't grow up in my situation. You blame-shift. You just make it about everyone else except you. That's the immature way to respond to being challenged from the scriptures. Paul says, I'm mature. And what a mature Christian says is, if I've got something to learn, I want to learn it. And if I've got a way to repent, and you're right, then I want to hear it. I haven't reached my goal, Paul says. I'm mature. And a mature Christian is humble and wants to be like Jesus and realizes that he or she is not there yet. That's a mature Christian. And in any case, what does he say in verse 16? He says, in any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have obtained. Now, I know there's a few of you here who are new Christians, which is fantastic, by the way, right? And you know that someone asked me the other day, that uh, they, it sort of came up in Bible study, and they said, look, I just don't know why you as Christians sort of make, why we make all these different decisions, and why you do this, and why you do that, and why is this, and why is that, and I'm just, I'm, I'm confused, like it just doesn't make sense. And what I said to them was just relax. If you know this much about Jesus, then just live that out with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. If you know this much about him, then live that out. And if you know this, guess what that means? (laughs) If you know this much about him, then you live out the truth that you've attained. If you know this much, live that out. If you know this much, live that out. And be patient people, gracious people. If we have people in our midst that know this much about Jesus and they're struggling in the Christian life, then we're with them. We're with them. We're not against them. We are with them. Okay, let's think about that. But in doing that, in living with one foot in this world and one foot in the next, there's all sorts of trials and temptations and all sorts of stuff that we're going to come up against. And Paul says that who we imitate and who we get influenced by and who we listen to is super important. And he's really worried about the Philippian church because there's people who have come around them who think very differently to him. So he says this, he says, imitate those whose focus is the world to come. Look at verse 17. He says, join in imitating me, brothers, and observe those who live according to the example that you have in us. Imitate me. And it's true, isn't it, that you know how you end up imitating the people that you hang around with? 
<laughs> you sort of end up picking up their mannerisms and you sort of start talking like them and all that sort of stuff. You know, for example, you know, where's, um, where's, where's Swifty? He's, oh, he's not here. Oh, well, I can give him a hard time then, you know. <laughs> if you know, you can tell him I said this. If you hang around Swifty long enough, right, you end up having no shoes on. It's just magical, <laughs> right? It's just, I don't know how this happens. Right, Cam, he's on, off in, on mission tonight in the lower Blue Mountains. Can you pray for all our more college students who are around different parts of Sydney preaching the gospel over the next week? If you're around Cam long enough, right, your, your sense of humour, all these dad jokes just keep flying out. Right, where's Desiree? Where are you, Desi? You're around Desi long enough, you just start giggling. Do you find that? Right? Yeah, see? Like, she just does it there. It's just that. And, and you do it after the joke. It's fantastic. You see? But... And whoever you hang around, you sort of pick up their mannerisms. And Paul says, well, who are you running with towards the goal in this life? Who are you running with? And Paul, he set a pretty good example, didn't he? Because he firmly had one foot in this world and he firmly had one foot in the next, didn't he? I mean, Paul was a man of this world. He suffered for the gospel. He loved Jesus. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was real. But not only that, he loved Christ. He made decisions for Christ. He lived for Christ. He used his money for Christ. He used his time for Christ. He, he wrapped his life around what Christ was doing in this world. And so Paul, he was real and he was focused on Jesus. And I think Paul is saying, they're the sort of people you've got to find in your life as a Christian. People who are real, like not fakes, real and who are focused on Jesus. And what do you want to do? You want to imitate them. You want to follow them. You want to watch them. You want to learn from them. If you've got kids, you want your kids to hang around with them. That's what happens. Because some of us are quite easily influenced. And Paul was worried about the church in Philippi. Because there were some coming into the church or outside of the church, we're not exactly sure. And they don't want to know Christ and live for him. They haven't got one foot in this world and one foot in the next. They've got both feet firmly planted in this world. And they were becoming very influential in the church. And he's worried. So have a look at verse 18, what he says. Don't imitate those who think they've arrived. Verse 18, have a look. He says, for I've often told you, and he's worried. He says, and now again I say with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I mean, Paul stood for the cross. He stood for the fact that Jesus died for our sins. And he's saying there's some people that you're tempted to be like and they hate the cross. They hate Jesus. And look at verse 19. He says, what, what is their end? Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. That is, I don't think that's literal, by the way. It's not like if you love MasterChef, then somehow you're an enemy of the cross. right? That's, that's not what it's saying. Their God is their stomach means... Because the stomach was, in Greek thinking, was the sort of place of your desires. So their God was their desires. In other words, their mantra was, does it feel good? Do it. There is no world to come. I'm going to live for now. Just, just live like that. And what else does Paul say? He says their glory is in their shame. What he means is, is that the things that they glory in now will turn out to be shameful on the day when Jesus comes again the things that they laugh about, the things that they dream about, the things that they want will turn out to be shameful on that last day. When Jesus, their creator, looks at what they've done 
And he'll say, I made you and you live for that and you love that and you want that. Really? They have two feet firmly pressed in this world. Now, we say that really humbly, don't we? Because can I say, for the first 19 years of my life, I had two feet firmly pressed in this world. My end was destruction. God was my stomach. And my glory was in shameful things. Until, like Paul, God grabbed me by the scruff of the neck by his grace and pulled me out of that and into a new life. And for lots of you, that's exactly the same. If you have the best testimony in the world, and that is you grew up in a Christian family, you may not remember this. But for lots of us, we can remember we used to think this way. But lots of us, this is why some of us can lose our joy as Christians. It's because we look around and we're re- really easily influenced. For example, you know, the latest fashion comes out. New style of jeans. You're like, oh, I've got to get out, get out and get them. right? And you sort of go into the change room and you think, I've got to wear skinny jeans now. And you sort of, do you know, that, do you know this experience? And you go, I, got, I know this is meant to be good for me, but this is crazy. But, you know, you know, you know Fred's wearing them, so I guess, you know, I've got to. That's a, sorry, is this just me? You've never been influenced by fashion? Okay, well... But seriously, you know, the crowd is going this way and you're like, I must go with them. If the crowd is doing this, then I must be with them. I mean, are we there yet? I mean, there is no there. The people that you're being influenced by, there is no life to come. There is no living for Christ. There is no pleasing him. It's not even on their radar. And we get tempted. And can I say that that's a crazy way to live? It really is. Now I want to show you my example. I'll tell you why that's a crazy way to live. Now, you've got to use your imagination at this point. Okay. Now, this is an electrical cord, just so you know, if you were wondering. Thanks, Jono. Yeah. It's a very special electrical cord that was in my office that connects my printer to my computer. Here you go. Now I want you to imagine, now you've got to use your imagination at this point. I want you to imagine that this electrical cord goes on forever. Can you imagine that? I know it ends just past the other microphone, but just, just imagine that this electrical cord goes on forever. Yeah, you got that in your mind? Imagine it going around the world many, 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 many times. Okay, do you remember that? And even then, that would not be forever. Because what this whole length of cord represents is your existence this is your life as if this goes on forever and you know this little red bit this represents your time on earth or more correctly this earth that's what this little red bit is and you know what the crazy thing is is that we get super focused and super consumed by this little red bit. So we've got just a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of time here. And then we've got millions and millions and millions and millions of years afterwards. But we just get so tied up in all of this. Isn't this true? And we sort of, some of us think like this. We think, what I'm going to do is I'm going to work really hard here. Right? I'm going to save, 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 save. And I'm going to have a really comfortable life just here. Right? <laughs> 
And then, and then I might get a bit, it'd be hard when I'm old here. But this little, this bit here, it's going to be awesome, right? And we get consumed by it. And we think in this little time here, am I going to get to eat the things that I want to eat? And am I going to travel with the places where I want to go? And will I get the sort of things that I want to get? And we just get totally consumed by just this tiny little section. And yet the Bible says that the decisions that we make in this section of life actually determine where we're going to spend millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of years. And it's crazy, but we focus on this and not that. And what Paul says, he says, I'm going to be like a runner and I'm going to run towards the goal. And do you know what the goal is? The goal is this point here, where we meet Christ. And on that day, we will know him fully. And you know how we're growing and we're becoming like him? On that day, the Bible says we will be fully glorified. We'll be made perfect right here. And do you know how we'll spend perfection? Eternity with him. But we've got this life to make it right. Now, sometimes what happens is, is that it's really difficult because no one lives this way, right? No one lives for just for all of eternity, for millions and millions and millions of years. And in this crazy world, all of us are so fixated on what's going on here that we get distracted from this and this and this and this. I'll give you an example. Sometimes as a Christian, someone will say to you, if you make that decision here as a Christian, that's going to stuff up your whole life here. That's going to, like, if you do that here, here's going to be terrible. And I think, that's, that's not crazy. I'll tell you what's crazy. You making this decision here is going to affect you for millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of years. We get distracted. But what does Paul say in verse 20? Have a look with me. What does he say? He says, but our citizenship is where? It's in heaven, from which we eagerly await for a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. And so Paul says, up until that day, I'm going to be like a runner and I'm going to be focused and I'm going to run towards this goal. And that will mean making certain decisions in this life that affect all of this. Because you know, biblically speaking, there's only two things, and I'm going to finish with this, that actually we can take into this part of our life. There's only two things that remain. Jesus and people. Everything else in this world is going to get made again. And so you will make decisions in this part of our life, we will make decisions in this part of our life, depending on how you picture this part of your life. I'll give you an example. If you think you've got to get your accommodation sorted for heaven, then that will mean that you'll make certain decisions in this part of your life. But actually, if you think that the way that you treat people and what you say to them about the Lord Jesus Christ and how you live for him in this world, if you think what you do in this part of life actually makes a difference for this 
and this and this and this, then that will change how you live. The only two things that will be here that are here are Jesus and people. So don't live for earthly things. Live for the things that will remain. And guess what? You'll never do that perfectly. So be gracious to each other when you don't. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Father, we thank you that there are always many, many reasons for us to be thankful uh, to you. Father, we thank you that you are preparing a glorious new creation for us. And not only that, you are changing us from the inside out to be like Christ. Yet, Father, we know that we have not yet been made perfect. We are not yet fully mature. We have not yet reached the goal. We will continue to sin and make mistakes this side of Jesus' return. So I pray you would help us to be humble with each other as we grow in Christ. And not only that, Father, we look forward to the day when as citizens of heaven, we'll actually be there and we'll enjoy Christ. And so, Father, whatever comes before us in this life as we sing in this next song, we pray, Father, we would still have 10,000 reasons to praise you. Because what is to come is so much better than what we have now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.